Good to be here. Um, let's turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. And, um, in fact, there's a couple of verses in chapter 3. Um, I think I'm in chapter 4, verse 21 to 31. That's what I've got in my diary. Now's the time to change it. If it's not, no, this is good. We're in the right place. Good. Galatians chapter 3, please. And um, we'll just read a couple of verses. Verse 16. Uh, Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seed as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it's no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added, it's added alongside is the idea, because of transgressions, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Notice, notice two covenants, one with Abraham, and then the law covenant which was in place until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Verse 29, If ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4, verse 21, Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a bond made, the other by a free woman. And he who was of the bond woman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory. Or these things speak another thing. For These are the two covenants, that is the two sons, so you've got the son of the bondmaid and the son of the free woman, so that's Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, We can speak of them in first name terms, we know them well enough. Uh, and, And these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to or which begets bondage, which is... Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to, or is in the same rank with Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not, break forth, and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman 
and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman so then brethren we are not children of the bondwoman but of the free stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free or Christ has set us free in freedom or for freedom stand fast therefore and be not held again in a yoke of bondage Amen May the Lord give us help as we as we teach uh, the passage tonight right uh, this is all a bit tricky uh, you'll have got that already now, so, now, now uh, the, the wonderful thing about Galatians 4 at the end is that this is the conclusion of an argument so I can depend upon whoever it was and I'm not sure who it was took up the rest of chapter 3 and 4 if you've understood perfectly chapter 3 and 4 so far then you're on good ground because this is just an extra illustration that makes a couple of minor additional points so now don't go home if you've got chapter 3 and 4 so far but, uh, but the big the big points have been landed and I now get to take it home uh, now what I want to do tonight is I want to think first of all just to, to understand how you, how you get to understand a difficult passage in the Bible there are a few of them you might have noticed so what I thought we'd do is we'll approach it like a difficult passage and give some indications of how we should understand difficult passages or approach them and and, and then I want to think a little bit about hermeneutics don't go to sleep on me when we get there but we need to think about this whole idea of allegory and then we'll get to the interpretation which actually if you understand all of that actually is quite simple and won't take too long I promise so let's start off with then just uh, how you understand any difficult passage Two things I suggest you have to do. First of all, you have to understand the argument uh, that is going on, the the context, the flow of of what is happening. And in an epistle particularly, when you get to tricky passages, if you understand the argument of the section, it will help you just stay within reasonable bounds. And secondly, you have to understand the aim of the section. Where is it taking us to? So so the broad argument and then the aim that is taking us to. So let's think about about this section. Uh, The context of the book, first of all, uh, I was reminded, looking at my notes, that I was here a couple of years ago for a conference, a very odd conference, where I spoke to very few people in the hall because it was illegal to have more. Uh, But we were on Galatians. I don't think we touched three and four very much. I'm not sure. I don't think we did. But but what I tried to sketch out at that point is the kind of overview of the book and, and that will help us in context so remember what we have in Galatians and I'm sure you've seen this as you've gone through it is that in chapter 1 and 2 you have, you have two principles by which you can live your life faith or by works that's the issue in Galatia some, some people were teaching the Christians that they should follow a principle of works in life and Paul says it's completely distinct and separate from a principle of faith you came to Christ by faith not by works and that's the principle you live your life by those principles have different powers at work and that's chapter 3 and 4 the principle of of faith is linked with the work of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in chapter 3 and 4. And the principle of works is linked with the power of the flesh in chapter 3 and 4. So, so faith and works, flesh and spirit 
in chapter 3 and 4. It's also linked with two positions in chapter 3 and 4. The position of a son and the position of a slave. Okay, uh, And as someone who's saved, you're living by faith, by the power of the Spirit, as a son. Uh, and as somebody who's not saved, but religious, like the unbelieving false teachers that were kicking around the Galatian churches, they were living by the principle of works, empowered and energized by the flesh, and living in the slavery of law-keeping. That's the idea of the whole context. By the way, it leads to, of course, the produce of a life, uh, love by those who are believers living by faith, and self, uh, which is the outcome of those who live by works through the power of the flesh. You get all that. You remember all that. I'm sure you do. Like, I didn't waste my time coming at the conference. I'm sure it didn't. You got it all down. Right, so that will tell us, like, in this section, we're talking about the difference between being a son who is living by the power of the Spirit and those that are in a different category altogether, those that are slaves living by the power of the flesh. So that's chapter 3 and 4, and this is the climax of chapter 3 and 4, so it's kind of important, okay? Secondly, that's the context of the book, but then we think about the context of the covenants of chapter 3. Really important, because in our section, we are finding that there is two covenants referred to. These are, verse 24, the two covenants. Now, what two covenants are there? You know, you'd be astonished that, I would say most of the commentators that I flicked through, uh, immediately say, well, this is the old and the new covenant. Old and the new covenant, uh, and, and I'm sorry, but I don't agree, and some of you will disagree with me, but that's okay. We can chat about it over coffee, apparently, which I didn't know was happening. Uh, I can stay out late tonight. My wife won't know where I'm at. But but uh, but you know you've got two covenants. But what are they? Well, chapter three, I would submit, it makes it quite clear. It's the Abrahamic covenant and the law covenant that's in play. That's what Paul's been teaching about. Now. I won't fall out with you too much if you think it's a new covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant, of course, is the foundation redemptive covenant that builds into the new covenant, okay? Uh, they keep getting added to the covenant's fascinating study, the development of the covenant promises. They, but redemptively, they start in the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant is the climactic one. But really, in context, it's two covenants. The, the covenant with Abraham, where, of course, the the climactic promise was that in him, in his seed, all the peoples of the earth, all of the earth shall be blessed. That's your Abrahamic covenant word, blessed. Okay, The blessings of God come upon those through the seed of Abraham. But the contrast here is with the law covenant. Uh, and we saw there in chapter 3 that the law covenant couldn't disannul the Abrahamic covenant. You've been taught this already. It couldn't come alongside and change it. Okay? It didn't replace it. It didn't cancel it. What happened is it came alongside, technical Greek word, for a period. And then it went away. So, so the context of the book, the context of the covenants in chapter 3. But then, thirdly, this argument of the book in chapter 4 is about claims that that uh, Paul is making. Okay, so, so here's what he does in chapter 4. He makes claims about their position and their problem. He's, uh, he's diagnosing the issue. He says in verse, and you've seen this already, but verse, verse uh, 1 to 6, he says that they are in the position of sons, not slaves. That's the key, key teaching. Okay? As those linked with the Abrahamic covenant, those linked with the, oh, by the way, I hope you've come to believe you are linked with the Abrahamic covenant. 
Hope you believe that. Hope we've got that clear in chapter 3. In Christ, the blessings of all the world linked with you, by the way, which includes the planet, if you get to Romans 4. So I hope you like the planet, because uh, it's part of your inheritance. Uh, and uh, and as, you, as you think about that, we're told then that we're in the position of sons, not slaves, in chapter, one verse, chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. But then he talks about their problem, and their problem, verse 7 through 20, as it flows through, is is that they were, they were going away from that position, the enjoyment of it. They were regressing, not progressing. Okay? They wanted to progress, bless them. Uh, they wanted to make spiritual progress, but they were actually moving away from what God had given them. And Paul is saying, look, you're not living in the good of this. You are drifting from the enjoyment of the position of sons operating by the power of the Spirit, and you're drifting towards that. That's of a totally different order altogether. And, and therefore, now he comes to this section, this, this verse 21 to 31, and he's going to make super clear these two ranks, as he describes them, two ranks that you can be linked with. And he says, you're in one and not the other. So, so stop drifting towards this one. Because that's not you, right? And this is you. And so as he gives this historical principle or prototype language of verse 21 to 31, it's the climax of this argument that they are sons operating by the Spirit, not slaves operating by the flesh. Okay? Right. So that's the flow so far. That's the argument. What's the aim of the section? Well, where does it land? Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. This is where you'll get to next time around. Uh, and it's much happier territory than what I'm preaching tonight, but whoever's got the section next week has got a, a happier section to preach in. And preach it well, whoever it is. So, because here it is, look. St- stand fast, or Christ has set you free for freedom. Your salvation involved the specific setting free by Christ of you for this purpose that you would enjoy freedom Christian that's what God wants for you to not just be free but enjoy it to not just be free categorically and in status but to live in the good of it to live as free and that was the problem here they were getting sucked into a life of bondage religious bondage under rules of law keeping and demands That was not what Christ had saved them to enjoy. They were casting doubt upon their salvation by being sucked in. But he's saying that's not why you were saved. That's not the point. Therefore, don't get entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Beginning of chapter 4, that's where you were pre-salvation in your pagan religion. Don't get sucked into it in Judaistic religion. Because you've been set free. So that's the aim. Therefore, look at the climax of chapter 4. He comes in verse 30 and he quotes scripture and says, Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Right, that's where it's going to land. Alright, that's where the meeting's landing tonight. Uh, Right, we've got our frame of reference. Have I lost anyone so far? Hands up. Because we could lose some of you. Good, there's one one loss. That's not bad, actually. For, uh, for me, that's pretty good. 20 minutes in or 10 minutes in. Right, let's think a little bit about interpretation. Because you'll see this word, allegory, uh, that is in verse, uh, in verse 24. Which things are an allegory? 
Now, <laughs> the word is, is the Greek word allegorio, so you can see where the word allegory comes from. But I'm going to suggest that whenever we say the word allegory, there's something pops into your head straight away. Uh, I won't ask you to shout out because I'm preaching, but it's it's uh, it's the Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? It's the first thing that jumps into most Christians' minds is the Pilgrim's Progress, because it is an allegory. And the idea of an allegory, Pilgrim's Progress is a great example, is of a story. Okay, a story which is lovely in itself. Um, of a man who's doing things and meeting people and so on and he's heading to the heavenly city and so on I've never really studied it to be honest I'm not a big fan of Pilgrim's Progress but that's an aside personal uh, don't take that as a criticism but, but nonetheless it's a story but you know that the story is more than a story that beneath the story there is meaning a deeper meaning that the slough of despond is not just a it's not just a dirty old lakey thing you can get stuck in. It speaks of something. It has a deeper meaning. Okay? Now, now that's allegory as we think about it. Now, I, I would suggest we've got to be super, super careful when we come to the Bible and including this section here, describing it in allegory in those terms. Now, the Greek word is the word allegory, but, but let's be clear. What the Greek word says is it simply means to speak another thing. That this speaks another thing. That what he's going to show us is a Bible uh, story, actual story. Look at verse 22. It is written. That is the standard New Testament way of quoting the Old Testament authoritatively. This is actual history. So let's be clear first of all. Galatians 4, 21-31 is no pilgrim's progress. First of all, because it's not a story. It's not a fictional story. It's real history. Okay, it's real history. And the idea is not that there's a deeper hidden meaning. Okay? It's not that you go around, now this is how some people teach the Bible. In fact, the church at large, globally, used allegorical interpretation of the Bible for hundreds of years under the darkness of Roman Catholicism. Right? The history of Christianity has been dogged by allegorical interpretation. It started with the Jewish Midrash or the Jewish the rabbis. That's how they looked at the Old Testament. It was taken on to early church fathers like Clement and Oregon through the Alexandrian teachings. And it became the dominant teaching of the church for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So forgive me getting a little bit excited. But we cannot allow ourselves to be regressed into allegorical interpretation of the Bible. Now let me give you an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. What is allegorizing? This is from R.B. Zuck's basic Bible interpretation. Allegorizing is searching for a hidden, searching for a hidden or secret meaning underlying but remote from and unrelated in reality to the more obvious meaning of a text. In other words, the literal reading is a sort of code that needs to be deciphered to determine the more significant and hidden meaning. In this approach, the literal is superficial, the allegorical is the true meaning. What that means is the Bible's a magic book and you can you can make out of it whatever you want. Right? Let me give you some examples. This is quoting from Paul Lee Tan in his book The Interpretation of Prophecy. Here's some middle-aged church examples. Okay? Right. The two pence given by the Good Samaritan to the innkeeper has the hidden meanings of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The river Euphrates means the outflow of manners and is not an actual literal river in Mesopotamia. 
Pope Gregory the Great's interpretation of the book of Job is most disheartening. He says the patriarch's three friends denote the heretics, his seven sons are the twelve apostles, his seven thousand sheep are God's faithful people, and his three thousand humpback camels are the depraved Gentiles. Right? Does it give you a kind of thing? That's what the church was teaching, that's what the Pope was teaching for hundreds of years. The Bible's a magic book. You can decide what it means and find anything. Now, that's kind of humorous, okay? That's kind of humorous. But sadly what happens is men stand on platforms and they say, this means that. And whenever someone says, this means that, you make sure they've got Bible for it. Make sure they've got Bible for it. Because we don't play with this book. It's the Word of God. The way that Christ interpreted the Old Testament, the way that Paul interprets the Old Testament, is direct and literal. And Galatians 4 is no different. So don't go poking around thinking, well, here's the surface meaning, but where's the deeper, mystical, fuller, real meaning of a text? You know, when it says that Job had 3,000 humpback camels... That's just part of what he had, which was literally 3,000 humpback camels. Okay, part of his wealth. But God's designing it or referencing it in specifics. Okay? So, I would suggest this is an allegory as we think about it, or as we describe it, where there is a deeper meaning. Now, this is the key point. What we have here is prototypical or principal teaching. What we are being taught by Paul in this section is that as we look to the Old Testament, we can see principles of divine dealing that go beyond the historical narrative and are repeated in wider and fuller expression elsewhere in the Bible. A great example is the Passover, which was a literal event, which, which actually happened, which was remembered by the Jews. But the principles of Passover were experienced, that redemptive principle, the redemptive principles that were there in prototype in Passover were experienced by you the day you got saved, so that Christians can, 1 Corinthians 5, say that Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. But that's not the end, because the Lord in the upper room said he will not keep the Passover, and he talks about until the fullness of it in the kingdom. So the Passover's coming as well, by the way. Right? You see, the idea is there's a principle in a literal historical event that goes beyond and goes on. Now, that's what we've got here. That in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar, there are principles which we can see that stand out that we apply and we understand in our passage today. Right? Have I lost anyone else? No, don't put your hands up because I'll get disheartened. Right, let's get into the text. So, uh, what have we got? Well, verse 22 to 23 um, is, uh, sorry, verse 21 uh, through 23 is historical. It's historical. He says, tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? He says, you want to be under the demands of law. Law, remember, is precept. That is a commandment and instruction plus penalty. The two things have to go together. Precept plus penalty for not being. Right? That's law. You want to be under law. He says, have you not read the law? The law, of course, refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. So he says, have you not read Genesis? Right? 
So he's going to say there's a principle in Genesis we need to understand. So then we have verse 22 and 23 is historical. It says simply that Abraham had two sons. One by a bondmaid, one by a free woman. He was of the, who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Now, let's stop for this for a second. The historical. After the flesh. That is, Ishmael was born under the principle of flesh. Now, you've already seen in Galatians that Paul uses flesh in a moral sense. That it is the self-effort, it is the propensity within us to live without God and away from God that is described morally in the language of flesh. It's resident in our bodies unredeemed. It is very closely linked with our physical flesh, but it's a moral principle. He talks in Philippians 3 about having confidence in the flesh, and that's, that's the idea. But that's what Hagar, what the bringing in of Hagar and the birth of Ishmael was all about. It was flesh, born after the flesh. It was the idea, this is the principle, that man's best will be good enough for God. Right? That was Abraham and Hagar, wasn't it? God had made the promises. You know, a big test, by the way. You're going to have an inheritance. <laughs> You're going to have an inheritance. I've got no heir. But you're going to have an heir. <laughs> then time rolls on. You still don't have an heir. But they took it into their own hands. And it was a movement of the flesh. It was after flesh in verse 23. Which by the time you come down to verse 29 notice. That the flesh is contrasted with the spirit. The idea is that this power. This principle uh, of, of works. Is ex- expressed in the power of the flesh. It is man centred. Man's best coming to the fore. That was man's best answer to the problem that Abraham had. An inheritance, but no seed. Hagar was brought in. It was after the flesh. But the other one was born through promise. Notice the language. Through promise. The only reason that Isaac existed was because God made promises. Isn't that good? Like you read chapter 15 through uh, 21 of Genesis and notice the word promise. Isaac only existed because God promised he would come. It was natural in one sense, but it was very much supernatural in another. Past bearing, body as good as dead. God's promised. And Isaac came. Completely and utterly based upon the work of God. And that's why it's linked with the Spirit in verse 29. That which is born after the Spirit which will come on to. So, so that's historical. Now he says, have you not read the law? That's the historical reality. But he's saying the historical, we then come on to verse 24 to 27, is prototypical. Sorry for the word. But it is probably the best. That's the best word I can come up with. Prototypical. That is, this is a prototype. Or this is a, a, 
a, an experience within which there is a principle that goes well beyond just these experiences. And this is where we get into this idea of allegory. And I, now notice two things. Three things. Uh, which things are an allegory? That is, that is the, the speak, it speaks another thing. Notice verse 24. For these, the two sons, are the two covenants. Now, <laughs> now what does that mean? That the two sons weren't actually the two covenants. The idea is that they represent the two covenants. I.e., the principles in play with the two boys are the same principles that are in play with the covenants that I've been teaching you about, Paul says. Okay? What happened with these two boys was well, the same thing that's happening with these two covenants. Likewise, notice the language in verse 25. Uh, Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to. Really important word just to get what's going on here. The idea is in the same rank as or the same line as. He's saying there are two lines, two ranks here. And, and they face off one with the other. Two direct lines that never meet, all linked with the two sons. Now, I'll confess here, I had a PowerPoint slide on this. And I thought, I'm gonna, I thought that might even confuse you more, right? And you'd all be looking at the PowerPoint slide when I was trying to teach, so I ditched it at the last minute. But you've got to visualize two ranks, all right? Now let me give you what they are, uh, and then we'll go down them. All right. So, so give me. So it starts off with the sons, two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Then you have two mothers, free woman, the bond woman, Sarah, and Hagar. There they're linked with, with, well, with one mountain, <laughs> uh, Mount Sinai. I think the other mountains, Mount Zion, go to Hebrews 12. We will probably won't get there tonight, but, but there's at least one mountain. I think there's two in the background, Mount Sinai and Zion. There's two cities, Jerusalem that now is, Paul says, and Jerusalem which is above. We sang about it just now. Did you notice? Did you sing it? Did you mean it when you sang it? In the new Jerusalem, he'll appoint my soul a place. Yeah, let's go on to that in a minute. Right? Then there is two principles, or two, two powers rather. There is the flesh, the sight, and there is the spirit. Then there's the two covenants which have been referred to already, but they're climactically the law and the promise Abrahamic covenant, and two positions, that of bondage and that of freedom. Seven things. And the idea is these are in, these are in ranks all the way down. And Paul's saying this, you can't be half in one and half in the other. There is a complete separation. By the time you get to the bottom, we hear the words that were spoken to Abraham. God said this, cast out the bondwoman and her son. There can be no sharing between that rank and this rank. And that's what the Galatians were being taught. You can be in here, and you can be all happy with Christ and the cross, but you can bring a whole lot of Judaism and religiosity and law-keeping in alongside as well. In fact, they said you needed both of them to be able to be really fully saved and basically make progress. Paul says, no, never the twain shall meet. Two ranks, completely distinct. He says, Christian, you're in that one. And never 
never let anyone bring anything from this in. Now that's the lesson of the of this section. Now let's quickly go down these and then I'll get to the application at the end. Uh, because uh, verse 28 to 31 is practical. And if ever a section needed a practical outcome, this was one of them. So quickly then this section. Uh, the law covenant, first of all, from verse 23 through 25. Notice at the head of the rank is the son, son of the bondwoman. In verse 23. So, so Hagar, of course, she was a slave girl. So the idea of being the bondmaid, that's come out of bondage, slavery. You come to verse 24 and we find that that is linked with a covenant, the covenant of law, which is linked with Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, notice in verse 25, he says, it's in Arabia. <laughs> it's quite interesting. He says, it wasn't even in the promised land. Like it was outside like, they're making a huge deal of it, this Judaizers, about the law. But he's reminding them that it actually was given outside of the promised land altogether. So they're very excited about Abraham and the land. But the law didn't come from there. It happened in Arabia. So you have the sun, you have the covenant, you have Sinai. But verse 24 says it's linked with bondage. And this is the point we've got to get hold of. And we have in the section repeatedly. But it's bondage, verse 24. It genders to bondage. It only, it only results in bondage. Now there are some Christians today, there are many of them sadly, who speak in terms about wanting to be, in some sense, under the law. And they say, well, you know, I don't want to be under the ceremonial law, or the civil law, I don't want that, but I want the moral law. I want to be under the moral law. Really? Do you really want to be under the, under the moral law? Well, yeah, with Ten Commandments. I love the Ten Commandments. I love the Ten Commandments too. I don't want to be under them. Like, for six of them, you die. Right? Like, really? Like, the laws of the Ten Commandments are amazing. There is such remarkable truth in there. And it's very much for us to understand. But you don't want to be under them. It's bondage. <laughs> Bondage linked, of course, with slavery, the whole idea. And that's how the law was given. And therefore, in verse 24, it's, it's Hagar, the slave girl, that it's linked with. Then verse 25, notice, is linked with Jerusalem, which is uh, now, which is in bondage with her children. And this is the idea of the city of Jerusalem. Paul says, you know, they were up in Galatia. You see, if you're a long way away from something, you can paint all sorts of pictures. These Judaizers will no doubt have been saying, oh, you should go down to Jerusalem. You should see down there. I mean, look, there's a temple there, and there's sacrifices, and there's priests walking about in linen, white robes. It's amazing. I mean, you, just, you can feel the religiosity. Smell, smell it. Oh, it's beautiful. Like, like, it's really impressive. It's quite the place to be. You can just tell them, you can see them selling it, can't you? What Paul says, Jerusalem, which now is, is in bondage with her children. By the way, don't take any references to Paul going to the temple in the book of the Acts to think that somehow he is currying favour with or accepting Judaism. Like, look what he's saying here. Let's be absolutely clear what he's saying here. He was in a transitional phase, of course, in the book of the Acts. But there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever what he thought about Jerusalem, which now is. So that city is under bondage with our children. It has a dominant, demanding slavery upon the people, and they need set free with the gospel. Right? 
That's what Paul thinks of Jerusalem, which now is. And it's in that rank with Ishmael and Hagar and Sinai and slavery. That's where Jerusalem on earth right now is, he says. Uh, and uh, also as a mother, uh, you'll, you'll see the, the, the mother language in a moment, because cities are described as mothers, okay? Uh, that, that's how people describe their, their motherland and their mother city quite regularly across the world. I don't know if you ever describe Aberdeen as your mother, do you? You think about it in motherly terms? Probably not. Some of you are blue-ins from elsewhere like me. Uh, but, but, but that's the description, and that's why when we go on to the next verse, it talks about Jerusalem, which is above which is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, so, you, so you see that, that one rank all the way down. It goes right the way down till flesh is the climax in verse 29. Because it starts with flesh in verse 23. Born after the flesh, that's son Ishmael. And it comes right down that one rank. And the whole thing is religious slavery from top to bottom. Right? Bondage. Now he says, that's not you. Okay? But he says, we're different. He says, Jerusalem, which is above, is free. Which is the mother of us all. He says, you belong there. Now, here's a question. How much do you think about Jerusalem above? The new Jerusalem. You sing about it sometimes, Andrew, get out of that hymn. You sing about it. What do you think about it? The city which Abraham looked for, his builder and maker was God. The eternal city. The eternal home of the redeemed. I hope you like it, because you're going to be there forever. <laughs> That's a shock to some of you. Nobody told you about that when you got saved. Well, well, you can come in and out of it. It's okay. There's gates. But, but it's, it's your eternal dwelling place. I believe it will be in the new heaven and the new earth. The capital city of the new heaven and the new earth forever. Uh, Hebrews 12 tells us the, those who dwell there and the key thing they're hold of is that God's there <laughs> God's there the angels are there the spirits of just men made perfect are there but you're there as well the church of the firstborn ones unique the bride of Christ forever Jerusalem which is above like it's there it's there and it's yours. Forget, I don't know how, how highly you think of Aberdeen, but there's a far better city. <laughs> a far better city. So you don't belong to the Jerusalem down here, however good you think it is. But Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of a soul. And, and he then, then links in verse 27, this whole idea of the mother city is then linked with the whole idea of the children. It's like... What are you linked with then, you know? Because they were all chuffed being linked with being Jews, you see. That's the idea. The, the literal father. So there's a bit of a play here, by the way, because Abraham being their father was the big issue. But he points out they've got a mother problem, not a father problem, okay? He says, you're, you're linked with the wrong mother, both literally in terms of Hagar, but secondly in terms of Jerusalem as a mother city. And, and he's, but he says to, to us now, he says, we're part of something that, verse 27, a quotation from uh, Isaiah 54, that there is, there is great uh, multitudes of children from that which was barren. You see, this is, this is the, going back to Genesis. And that in that flow in Genesis, the big question for Abraham was, where's the heir going to come from? And you know, for many long years, it looked pretty hard. The promise had been made. 
But the Abrahamic covenant that promised blessing for all the world has now outflowed into a massive outpouring of multitudes. How many will be in the eternal city? Like how many saved people from all time? Spirits of just men made perfect. That's the saved people from every generation, every time, apart from the church age. How many in the church? Like how many billions? How many saved at the tribulation period? Global gospel preaching. Which saves multitudes. I think possibly billions. In judgment God remembers mercy. Tell you the city is going to be full. <laughs> and, and he says. The baron has given way to a multitude of children. That's what you're linked with. Now we brethren. Verse 28. As Isaac was. Are the children of promise. There you are. Right? Do you know which line you're in? Are we all clear? Are we all clear which rank we're in? However much I have lost you, there's two ranks. And it starts with Isaac and Ishmael and it flows all the way down to flesh and spirit. And you're in the one that has salvation principles marked all over it from start to finish. But there's a religious bondage rank that sits over against it. Now, two things to finish. Verse 28 to 31 is practical. Two things we understand. As we climax this whole section, and that is this, verse 29 makes it clear that, that there is hostility between these two ranks. And verse 30 makes it clear there's incompatibility between these two ranks. Now this is, this is the climax and this is the final application. First of all, there's hostility. Now did you notice the language? Verse 29, as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Now that's what happened. See the, the principle that happened back in the day, remember? What did Ishmael do when Isaac was born <laughs> and came of age? What happened? He persecuted him. So it happened, historically. Paul says, that hostility still happens now. Now do you believe that? Do you see that? Grace alone Faith alone, scripture alone, salvation through Christ alone, gospel, is hated by works-based religion. You believe that? Because the book of the Acts makes it abundantly clear. What's the biggest problem to Christianity and the outspread of the gospel in the book of the Acts? It's not paganism. It's Judaism. Now it's the same today. Let's be clear. In the raw, the strongest opposition to the gospel, the strongest hatred to the gospel, hostility, is from false works-based religion. All over the world. That's what happened. Uh, A case recently I heard of and know about where an evangelical Christian group were looking for a little bit of space to do a little bit of preaching. And on the council committee that was deciding whether they could have the facility or not, several representatives from the established churches, and they were the ones that voted no. Still happens today. 
Remember this, there's hostility. Don't be surprised when there's hostility. But remember this, what that links to then is an issue of incompatibility. That's verse 30 or 31. See, there's no link uh, between flesh and spirit. Uh, nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman's son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. See, what hap- again, what happened in history? Do you remember that Hagar left because of that whole issue? <laughs> but she was sent back by God. She, uh, she was sent back uh, by God, sorry, before that. She was sent back into the house. But remember when the seed came, and when that whole issue happened, what did God say? Cast her out. Now, you, now you, having sent her back, God then cast her out. Why? What had changed? The seed had come. Genesis 21. And there could be no compatibility between that of the flesh and that of promise. Now he says that's how you have to live your life. Now remember this Christian, there is no compatibility between genuine, evangelical, true gospel Christianity and that which is counterfeit. That which is law based and works based. And there's a whole lot of grey areas and shades here, right? We need to be clear what we're having fellowship with. Because everything it says Christian on it is not Christian. Right? There's a whole lot of Christianity that's dressed up Judaism. Hope you understand that. Now I'm not castigating everyone or anyone. I'm not giving you a list of names. Right? <laughs> but what I'm saying is this. Is this passage is telling us that we have to understand that we expect hostility from a works-based religious system and what we believe in practice is incompatible with a works-based religious system. Because God will not have the two mixed. So he says, cast out the bondwoman or son. Brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but we are children of the free. Therefore, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and don't shift, don't move one inch. The lesson of Galatians, or one of the key lessons, is this as I finish on time for a change. You didn't do anything to get your position in Christ. You don't do anything to maintain your position in Christ. It's all of grace. And it's all of Christ. And don't let anyone pull you towards Ishmael and Hagar and Jerusalem that now is and Sinai and the covenant of law it came alongside for a time it's been annulled we live in a different day with a glorious gospel and freedom in Christ that will never change may the Lord help us to live in the good of it let's close in prayer Our blessed God, we give thanks uh, tonight for the Christ that has set us free. And and it is a wonderful thing just to pause this evening to recognise that for the many reasons he did that, he wanted us to enjoy the freedom of sons. 
position we can never lose. An acceptance and a standing which can never be changed. We're fundamentally undeserving of it, but by faith and through the Spirit, we stand in that place today and we give thanks. In a world that's marked by by so much religious confusion and by the bondage of a works-based system, help us to stand so different. Help us to preach the gospel clear. Help us to live it clear. And to rejoice in the freedom that Christ has given to us. Bless thy people here, we pray. Uh, As they continue studying this book, lead them to the blessings and the joys that come from love outworked in selfless service. And help them as a company to be more like Christ in a world that needs the gospel and the witness of Christian testimony. Bless thy people, we pray, as we give thanks for our time together, for refreshments provided as well, and do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.